And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Welcome to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Show. Derek Van Riper, Al Melkier here with you. It is Friday, April 22nd. It is Waiver Day here on the podcast. If you are watching us live on YouTube or anywhere else, feel free to drop questions in the chat. We'll try to answer a few of those uh, as we go. Uh, lots to get to. Al, of course, has a waiver wire article that runs every Friday on The Athletic. So if there's anyone we don't discuss here that is included there, you should be absolutely interested in those players. Be sure to check that piece out. Theathletic.com slash fantasy baseball podcast gets you a subscription for $1 a month for the first six months if you're not already a subscriber. As we do each and every week, we begin with some bats. And we're going to start on the shallow end and begin with a player that... We've been waiting on for a long time. Jerks and Profar off to a very nice start for the Padres this season, Al. And I feel like I've had to recuse myself from analyzing Profar in any particular direction because I think over the history of Under the Radar, he is the most mentioned player on our podcast. He comes up a lot. He's a Nando guy through and through. And as Keith Law said on the Athletic Baseball Show on Friday, you have this like drive. Your heart wants to root for jerks and Profar, but your brain looks at what he's done so far in the big leagues and sort of pushes you back into the being skeptical side. So the underlying numbers look really good. Are you believing in jerks and Profar being maybe completely healthy or being in some way different than he has been throughout his time in San Diego after this start that you've seen? Not in the long term. I, I don't. I mean, I can't speak to the health, but in terms of the performance, I, as you alluded to, he's he's backing up what he's doing. He's got four home runs already. That that reaches the total that he had of last season in a good number of plate appearances. And he is backing that up with much greater exit velocity, more barrels. So you want to see that. But I, I evaluate this differently for somebody like Profar as opposed to somebody who's a rookie, second, maybe a third-year player where you have a more limited track record to fall back on, maybe a more mixed track record. But Profar's been really, in a sense, he's been consistent. Like, he's never really hit the ball that hard. So for him to do this for two weeks out of nowhere, um, you know, we have seen this from other players. Uh, I made an allusion to this on Twitter and on an earlier podcast uh, earlier this week, uh, make a comparison with Michael A. Taylor this time last year, because I looked at him. I looked at also Anthony Rizzo hitting the ball a lot harder in the first two weeks. And thinking, okay, who was really, really locked in for the first two weeks of 2021 that then just kind of disappeared? And it was Michael A. Taylor, who was averaging like 99 or 100 miles an hour on, on, uh, flies and liners. And then he went back to being Michael A. Taylor, which was hitting in the vicinity of 92, 93 miles an hour. So, you know, it's a long, long way to say it, but I I expect that profile will have the same sort of regression. He's just been that player for way too long. Yeah. I I think this is one of the challenges for me of the stat cast era is determining when a player is just having a great couple of weeks and when they've actually reached a new level. And I think if we look back at Jerks and Profar's career, there might be another peak or two that looks similar to this, probably back in 2018. I think that was the 20 homer, 10 steal season that he had. I think he's done something like this before. I think this is the kind of player, though, where you'd say in a 10 team league, if he's still out there, he plays basically every day. I mean, they're out without Tatis right now, too. So I think that puts a little extra playing time behind a guy like Profar. Why wouldn't they play him? Maybe you roster him for now, you play him for a little while, and you know, if things start to look more like they have historically, you just move on. Like I, I think that's one of the harder parts about playing in a shallow league where it's fine for now. It's kind of like the Stephen Kwan situation that we talked about after Kwan's great week. Sure, you're willing to pick him up right now because situationally he's hitting high in the order. He's producing at a really elevated clip. 
when you start to see legitimate warning signs of, of it not staying at that level, you have to be quick to make a move to someone else. Well, the, the, yeah, the, the problem with that, I mean, yeah, what you just described is not a problem. You, you play the hot hand if it doesn't work out, as long as you, you pull the plug quick enough, there's, there's really no problem there. The issue is that, particularly this early in the season, when you're not looking at two great weeks that are kind of buried in mid-season statistics, but those, that is the stat line, and people are tempted to bid maybe 8 9 10% of their FAB budget on Profar. And in the column, what I wrote is, yeah, knock yourself out, you know, bid one or 2%, but let somebody else do the big spending for Profar. If you don't get them, you don't get them. And if you happen to miss out, then you miss out. I think the the, the percentage play is that you bid light and chances are he is going to regress back to who he's been. I want to ask you about Aaron Hicks. Uh, he's kind of in the old and boring category now. I mean, he's 32 and that's, that's old in fantasy baseball, but we're seeing some interesting things in his plate skills to begin the season. He's walking more than he's striking out, which is really nice to see. It's a 270, 378, 351 line. Yeah, that last number is a bit of a concern. Uh, we are seeing power across the league down home runs per game are down compared to where they've been for about seven straight seasons now and cold weather the spring training uh, situation the ball being different all of those factors are in play Uh, but as I look at Aaron Hicks I think he's one of those players that could become more shallow league relevant once the Yankees offense starts to produce at a clip closer to its projected expectation right I mean you can say Maybe the Yankees aren't as good as we thought, but they're also probably not this light hitting offensively as a group either. And given Hicks's role and that he seems to be healthy right now, he's the sort of player that at least if I'm in a league that starts five outfielders, I'm trying to find a, a way to get him on my roster because I think the the production when he's out there tends to be good enough to make a dent in those formats. I had thought about including him in the column this week. I did not, uh, but that's not to dispute anything that you just said. And the thing that I do like about Hicks is that he is more, you know, pardon the the use of the phrase, but he is more under the radar than Profar right now, who everybody's talking about and everybody's getting dragged back into uh, being excited about him like they were, you know, two seasons, four seasons, six seasons ago. Whereas, like you said, Hicks is kind of in that old and boring category and you could bid the same on him that you would bid on Profar and your chances of getting Hicks are just so much greater. And he probably has a better chance to contribute in, in terms of being a run producer, I think, than Profar does. So I like the call. So a quick question here from Casey that sort of fits right into what I had on my mind. In single catcher leagues with OBP instead of average and adding slugging percentage, do you prefer Elias Diaz or Travis Darno? I think I've seen those two names and Sean Murphy come up in a lot of single catcher league questions over the last 10 days or so. Yeah, that's a tough one. And yeah, when you add Murphy to that mix, those are all players that are really on that cusp of being single league catchers because, yeah, once you get past the first eight or nine, there's there's a big cluster and all three are are in there. I think I would probably go with Diaz. Uh, I think there's just a little bit more upside there. Darno has been that one catcher league type catcher in the past, but yeah, I I think I like Diaz uh, at, at this moment. It's a very close call for me. I think the the slugging percentage is the thing that maybe does tip it in Diaz's favor. So I think this is uh, also a streaming situation. We talked about the the hot hand situation, just saying who's hitting high in the order right now. Maybe injuries create opportunities that shift things around in those two lineups. I I think with Diaz, there's a little better path to a more prominent spot because they're not quite as uh, as deep as Atlanta is. And I think that's the one thing that when we saw Darno really pop in the shortened season a couple of years ago, he had a more prominent spot in the lineup than expected. So I'd be a little bit wary of him holding that as Atlanta's offense continues to get healthier. Uh, Travis wants to know, are you worried about Yasmani Grandal? He's got a decent number of barrels, but in a 10-team single catcher league, would you look to Sean Murphy or Austin Nola instead? I like all three of those catchers. Uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not talking or thinking about dropping Esmani Grandal, but I could certainly see benching him for either Murphy or Nola. And let's see, he doesn't, doesn't specify the the format of the ten team league here, but 
if you need a batting average, Nola would actually be the guy. Uh, Murphy more for power. So uh, I would be in favor of starting either one over uh, Grandal for right now. Yeah, definitely reserving Grandal rather than dropping if that's the the option. And I think I still like him as baseline more than I like Murphy and Nola. I think I like Murphy more than Nola because of the power. I'm willing to sacrifice the average. But Austin Nola is playing a lot more than expected. I think among catchers, he's already uh, fifth in plate appearances this season, or at least among catcher-eligible players. I know they do have other catchers. They like to rotate. Uh, This next question is about Josh Naylor. Is Josh Naylor on the improve? I mean, he's getting more opportunities because he's healthy again. How do you see Naylor fitting into the Guardians' playing time situation? Is he clearly a big side platoon bat for you, and what types of leagues are you picking him up? Yeah, I think he's a big side uh, platoon guy. It wouldn't surprise me that if he did maybe wind up getting moved to a smaller role if he doesn't hit enough to to justify the playing time. But to me, he's still like 15 team and deeper. So I'm not really pursuing Naylor uh, anywhere else. I think there's a lot of players right on the borderline right now. This is not a, a week where I see guys popping enough to be clear and obvious shadow league pickups. I know you, you G-Man Choi and Jock Peterson and, and Zach Collins are are all kind of caught in between. Like in 10 team leagues, I'm not necessarily sold on on any of those guys. In 12s, they're probably very schedule dependent. In 15s, I'm interested where available, but there's not that much that separates them from a lot of the other names that are out there right now. Uh, With Collins in particular, what do you make of him as a player? I, I see him and I picked up in a lot of my Thursday night free agent leagues and it was for more than I expected on the fab front, sort of uh, in an Owen Miller kind of way. I think I mentioned last week I'm in a league where a third of a fab budget went to Owen Miller. It was an AL only league, but still, um, how does Collins going to carve out long term playing time? Part of I think the maybe the path for Collins long term because you've got Danny Jansen who's on the IL, not clear when he's going to return. Um, you've got got Moreno in the minors uh, who's probably not going to be up really, really soon. So in the short term, Collins has all kinds of room to keep playing very regularly, but Alejandro Kirk just isn't really hitting much lately. So I think if he doesn't pick it up, you get Jansen back or Moreno gets called up. I think there, as long as Collins keeps on hitting and keeps on showing the power that he's been showing, I think there's there's a role for him. And what's really nice about Collins, at least in the short term, is he's hitting right in the thick of that order. I mean, mm-hmm. that that's pretty incredible. So I think that's a huge part of the appeal right there. Yeah, I guess when you're thinking about your your streaming opportunities, the players that are temporarily useful in some of those smaller leagues, that can be the difference maker. Even if the playing time is not necessarily a, a long-term guarantee, if you're in a good lineup and you're hitting higher than expected, uh, there could be a nice payoff. Definitely surprised to see Zach Collins in a cleanup spot, especially on a good team. That is not at all how I expected uh, things to play out for him. Uh, there's some other interesting names here for for deeper leagues. And Jonah Heim, I think he's rostered in a lot of the two-catcher leagues I plan because I think there was some deeper league buzz on him. He's a great defender, so that drives playing time. And I think a lot of us were expecting the Rangers to take a step forward offensively. And it could still happen. One thing that stood out to me when I was looking at the Rangers earlier this morning, Al, they've cut their team strikeout rate considerably from last season. They were at 23.4% a year ago. They're at 19.4% early on this season. So even though they're not necessarily putting runs on the board in bunches the way some people might have expected, we're going to get there. We're going to start to see improvement from this group. And and players like Haim and, and Nathaniel Lowe and, and the holdovers that maybe lagged a little bit with counting stats a year ago are in a much better place as a result of all of those big free agent additions they made. Yeah, and and just to to make a, a slight detour here, Nathaniel Lowe. I mean, just a really interesting profile, but kind of in that Yandy Diaz spot of just just looking for him to elevate the ball a little bit because there could be so much power there. Um, so if if that happens, then that obviously has a, a spillover effect to others in that lineup. Heim to me is kind of just a, just a guy, a second catcher. So I'm not sure at this stage what what makes him stand out. I mean, whereas again, just with a comparison with Zach Collins, where you do have some record of power in the minor leagues and you have him in this very small sample hitting for a great amount of power. And then he's, he's hit his way into the middle of that blue Jays lineup. I I'm not seeing yet. Like you say, maybe down the road, if, if high moves up in the order, if um, more of the Rangers hitters are hitting the way that we expect them to, maybe there's a similar appeal. I'm just not seeing it yet. 
Yeah, we're seeing for, for Heim, though, in the underlying numbers, a K rate that's down, a barrel rate that is up right now, and drawing more walks than ever. I don't know if he sustains all of that, I and mean, we're still talking about a very limited run of playing time, but uh, some skills going in the right direction for a young player that did flash a little bit of ability as a prospect along the way uh, in the Baltimore and Oakland systems. So more of a deep league play, but definitely someone on my radar. I'm curious to know, what are you doing with Tyler Wade where available. The stolen bases per plate appearance last year were uh, off the charts good. The question was, is he going to get enough playing time to actually provide those steals? And is he going to be even average in any of the other fantasy categories that we care about? Well, the thing that surprised me in looking at his uh, his uh, player page earlier today is that I have thought of Wade as a one-dimensional player. Obviously, steals. You, you figure you can get steals. And it does look like he's going to get playing time. I don't know if he can keep it, but Joe Madden right now seems pretty pretty content to keep him in the lineup. And if, as long as he's in the lineup regularly, I don't think he has to hit a whole lot to, to get to 20 steals. So there's I, I would you know write that in ink. But he has hit for, for average. And I think that he's one of these players. It's a very slippery slope because I think you have to have like a certain minimum of power to maintain a, a decent average. But I think he doesn't really have the power, but I think he does have enough speed that, you know, if he's hitting the ball the other way a lot, that he, he can get a lot of infield hits and, and really boost that average and, and go from being a one dimensional to a two or a three dimensional player where he's not only contributing batting average, but also scoring some runs. So, yeah, he's he's available in one of my 15 team leagues. I'll be certainly uh bidding uh probably in the 3 to 4% range on him because you get some steals, I think almost for sure and and maybe get get a couple other categories along the way. Yeah, I think that's that's the shallowest I could go a 15 team mixed league. He's started 9 of 13 games entering play on Friday, so a little less playing time than you would like to start pushing him any further. And he is stuck in the bottom third of the order, but I, I've always been intrigued by him as a player. I think it was pretty clear. He was never going to get a prolonged opportunity to be a regular with the Yankees, given the way the angels sort of punted uh, at shortstop this off season, or at least punted addressing one of shortstop or second base. I know David Fletcher's a, a, a competent regular. There is a path for Wade to stick and end up with a career best amount of playing time. The other Angels player people are, are curious about is Taylor Ward. I just see him as a thorn in the side of the other young outfielders that we're more excited about with the Angels. I know some of the underlying numbers last season were pretty good with Ward. I know he's a former first-round pick, so maybe there's some some organizational pressure to keep giving him opportunities and, and to see if he can actually deliver on, on what they thought they were getting several years ago. Uh, in what types of leagues, if any, are you chasing Ward this weekend? It's still 15-team, uh, pretty much. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm hoping what you said about him being perceived as a thorn in the side of, of a lot of us in, in fantasy who would like to see Joe Adele and Brandon Marsh have a, a secure amount of playing time going forward. I, I'm hoping that that's something I can use to my advantage because like you said, pretty solid numbers last year. He's uh, started every game since coming off of the IL roughly a week ago. And uh, he, can, he can compile some numbers and uh, put up uh, some decent power numbers and maybe, you know, can get them in the, you know, 1.5 to 2% range in terms of fab in those 15 teamers. I'd be really happy with that. I wonder how much of this is just the perfect storm of, of Trout missing a little bit of time and then two lefties getting starts for those first two games that Ward was back for last weekend. I think we might be getting deke just a little bit, but the thing that's working well for Taylor Ward is the lineup placement. He's hit second three times, hit third once, and hit fourth once. So when he plays, he's in a prominent spot. There's a little bit of that, that Zach Collins effect where even if you don't view him as a longer-term 12-team mixed-league sort of player, it might be just enough temporarily for a near min bid where you can plug him in and see what happens and, and just live with it as long as you possibly can, because that's a good top half of that lineup, at least, and a good spot for him to be in if he can cling on uh, to some playing time. But I, I would assume that it's bad news ultimately for Brandon Marsh. You know, just thinking about the way they've handled playing time so far, that maybe he'd be the guy that starts to lose a little bit of time if they want to play Ward and Dell in the corners and, and end up using Trout mostly in, in center field so long as Trout stays healthy. Because they've played Trout in center all season. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just, a, you could you could look at it as uh, that's Ward's path. Um, 
Maybe I'm being a little naive and taking Madden at his word. Uh, so you know, I look at those five straight starts and I look at not one, but two statements that I saw that Madden made uh, when Ward went on the IL and thinking, hmm, okay, uh, this, this seems to be the plan. So I just think, like I said, I'm hoping that it's not going to cost me much in terms of fab to take Madden at his word, but not so much that I'm willing to break the bank for it either. Rob's got a question. What's the playing time going to be like for Taylor Walls or Eli White? I mean, Taylor Walls, I think we've got a, a pretty good read on on how the Rays want to use him. Uh, he has started eight out of 13 games entering play on Friday, much like Tyler Wade stuck in the bottom third of the order. I actually think Taylor Walls has an offensive profile that befits a long-term regular in the major leagues, whereas Wade doesn't. So if you were in a keeper or dynasty situation, I actually think eventually, it might not even be this year, Walls could play a lot more. I think shorter term, I still see more of a 15-team league, bottom of the roster guy, more of an AL-only league sort of player, unfortunately, in the case of Walls. Whereas if you were on a handful of other teams, he'd probably be a clear everyday player. Yeah, but he's on the race, so I do distrust the playing time for him more than Tyler Wade uh, over the longer term. But maybe I don't need to be thinking about the longer term. In the short term, Walls is probably a perfectly fine pickup. And I think more so than Eli White, who seems pretty entrenched in being on the small side of platoon there. So it would be nice to see him get more of a shot, but I think barring an injury, we're probably not going to see that. Yeah, I've got more confidence in Walls than White playing time-wise, even with the crowd that the Rays have. And I think the other thing with with Eli White, the Rangers have a, a Nando guy kind of performing well at AAA. Bubba Thompson could actually find his way onto the big league roster at some point, and that could come at the expense of Eli White, too, as they try and make the pieces fit. Um, looking for a few potential drops. And look, I, I, I know that giving general drop advice is just, difficult because I've tried to do it for a while and every situation is different. So specifics, you know, who are you thinking about dropping? Feel free to send those our way and we'll try to to answer those on any given week or tweet at us prior to the show. And if there's a recurring theme with some players, we can absolutely address them because it's it's hard to know. Like, should you actually cut bait or not? I mean, I, I talked about Kevin Smith as one of my problem players. Now that he's finally hurt, it's an easy decision. Previous weeks, it wasn't, and most weeks you don't have an easy cut, or some weeks you don't have an easy cut like that that you can use uh, to simply move on. Uh, but I saw this question come in. Lots of underperforming bats in a 12-team category league with middle and corner and five outfielders. Who's the drop? Eddie Rosario, Aaron Hicks, Taylor Ward, Luke Voigt, and the options to pick up also important in a question like this include Kike Hernandez, Garrett Cooper, Ramon Laureano, and Luis Urias. Yeah, well, just to go backwards here and start with the pickups, I, I like Hernandez and Cooper a lot. Arias is pretty in- intriguing to me too. Uh, so in terms of who uh, you would cut to make room, as much as I was just you know kind of touting Taylor Ward, I think he kind of stands out as in this group as uh, probably the the most droppable. And I would certainly rather have Garrett Cooper or Kike Hernandez in place of Taylor Ward. And, and honestly, I'd rather have either one as opposed to Aaron Hicks, too. So I'm interested to hear you weigh in on that because I think you like Hicks maybe a little more than I do. I do, but once Loreano's back from his suspension two weeks from now, I would trust Loreano more on a day-to-day basis. I also think there's a better chance Loreano provides cheap speed that you're looking for. Um, you know, with Oakland, I, he's one of those guys that they're going to play as much as they possibly can. Maybe they're going to trade him later on this season. But I, I think he stands out to me as an eventual upgrade over Hicks. The question of when you have to make that move is tough. I, I think it's probably going to be within the next week or so that you'd have to pick him up in leagues where he's available because other people are going to be ready to stash him when we're only talking about maybe seven to ten days before he's back. But I think it's May 7th is the date that he's supposed to be eligible to come back from that suspension. So it's not too far off. Uh, I think Ward's the immediate drop for me. And I think I do prefer Kike Hernandez to him. So that's the first move I would make. But this is a group that you would watch very carefully and continue to, to cycle players on and off the roster, given some of the names that are available. Uh, Garrett Cooper, I don't know what it is. It's, it's the health, I guess. Uh, yeah. can, can you sell me on Garrett Cooper, Al? Just the skills. I, I'm with you on the health. But uh, yeah, I was talking with, with Michael Beller on the Thursday episode of the show and, and really almost kicking myself for not drafting Brandon Belt anywhere because it was kind of a similar thing. Now, Belt, to me, is on a higher level than Garrett Cooper, but 
I missed out on him because I, I'd be in a position in draft where I'd say, well, I could draft Brandon Belt here and get all that power he's shown the last couple of years, but he might miss half the season. But you know, now that he's healthy, I wish I had him. So I think if you could apply that kind of thinking to Garrett Cooper and say, you know, there's there's some great on base skills here, uh, probably a good batting average, a little bit of power, not extreme power, but enough power to help you, uh, a prominent spot in the Marlins lineup. Uh, And those are all things that can help you in the short term. One more hitter I wanted to bring up is Christian Pache. I I think as soon as Atlanta made that deal to get Matt Olson, we saw that Pache was going to Oakland as part of it. The playing time path became very clear. Like There was really nothing stopping Oakland from letting him be an everyday player. And he's basically been that. He started 13 of the first 14 games. He is stuck in the bottom third of the lineup for now, but... You talk about lineups that are written on a chalkboard that could be changed very quickly, written in pencil, written in whatever uh, whatever item you'd like to use to change quickly. I think there's room for him to move up if he shows the right skills. I don't know if that's necessarily going to happen this season, but whereas on a more competitive team, and I realize the A's are off to a nice start so far, I would have concerns about a player with some offensive flaws, a guy that hasn't drawn a walk yet this season in Pache. I'd be worried about playing time there. I'm not worried about that at all with the A's. There's a little bit of power. There's probably some speed. If you look back at the minor league numbers, though, it's often stolen bases with a lot of caught stealing. So I don't know where we land if it ends up being high single digits or low double digits, but what are you doing in leagues where Christian Pache is available, knowing that there could be a higher volume of playing time for him than some of the other outfielders that have safer skills? Well, he's definitely one of my favorite targets going into this weekend for 15-teamers. I, I'm not anywhere close to being ready in 12-teamers for him yet, but 15-teamers, 14-teamers, uh, I, I think it's time to add Pache, and he's he's available. I was actually kind of surprised at his roster rate. I mean, he's still available in that depth of league for the most part, and I, I, you know, I think it's pretty exciting. Yeah, he hasn't uh, drawn a walk yet. By the way, there is one player who's had... 10 more plate appearances than him, who also hasn't drawn a walk in his Beau Bichette. Mm. And I, I don't think people are too worried about him. I understand different team context, different skill sets. But the I, I do think that the power that Pache is showing right now, it's so far above and beyond what I was expecting. Because last year during that you know short little bit with Atlanta, just a far, far below average power hitter. And in terms of exit velocity and flies and liners, he's gone to being a little bit above average. So I find that pretty interesting. And then you take that team context where if he does just walk a little bit, brings the batting average up, which I think he can, and continues with this power, you're going to see him, I think, rise up that lineup pretty quickly. So I think now is a great time to grab him, and it, and it really should not put much of a dent in your fab at all. That's why we're interested, right? You glance and you say, well, some of these numbers are pretty ugly. He's hitting 208. He's got 2.8 OBP. Age to level, the power increase makes a lot of sense. It is backed up by the stat cast number so far. Uh, and if he has a, a great weekend, everyone's going to bid more. So if it's kind of a relatively quiet weekend and he's still sitting there, he might be a min-bid sort of player that you could end up getting a lot of value from uh, later on. A uh, follow-up question here from Rob about Kevin Smith, by the way. Yeah, I'm cutting him right now. I'm probably going to pick him back up later because I still like the skills. I just don't see enough there to hold through the injury. I think it's really difficult to roster players while they're hurt in uh, a lot of leagues, especially the leagues like the NFBC leagues, where you do not have uh, those, those IL spots to stash players with. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's move over to pitching for a bit, Al. Uh, We stay in Oakland. 
Paul Blackburn, who has a matchup coming up on the road against the Giants this week, I believe is his next one. Is there more to Blackburn than just a matchup play? I mean, opportunities are available all over the Oakland depth chart, and he is taking this opportunity in the rotation right now to be a nice uh, early season surprise. How much of it is the schedule he's had so far, and, and how much of it is actually sustainable as you look at more difficult matchups for him going forward? I think it could be sustainable, and obviously this is something that we will see. The Giants are going to be a nice test because they're kind of in the middle of the pack in terms of um, offensive stats so far this year. Uh, the park certainly will, will help Blackburn, as, as it does when he pitches at home. Uh, so, you know, if he passes this one, I mean, it's, it's not, uh, you know, like he's passing the toughest test, but it would give me some confidence going forward. And he's, he's throwing a little bit harder. He's getting... Not a huge amount of swing and miss with the sinker, which is uh, you know a pitch that he, he throws a lot, but uh, a lot more than he has in the past. So he's gone from being extremely contact friendly to being somebody who's who's getting like an average amount of swing and miss, which is to me for Blackburn that's like you know turning him into Max Scherzer. Like I just didn't see that coming, uh, and he's always been somebody who's been able to get ground balls. He's getting a lot of, of soft low ground ball contact so far this year. So it's really through I think it's three starts really a, a, a nice skill profile. Uh, I'm interested to, yeah, in this, this start against the Giants to see if he can make it four starts uh, with that that profile. Um, I'm willing to go about 5% of budget to, to see if it see if it works out. Yeah, Curveball's been a, a really effective weapon for him. It's his second most utilized pitch so far. Opponents hitting 077 against that so far. We'll see if that, that continues. I think it's kind of a question of Blackburn versus... Ross Stripling, who's getting a spot while Hinjin Ryu is hurt, uh, and and Tyler Anderson, who's stepping in for Andrew Heaney. If you're looking for uh, one out of that bunch, is Blackburn actually the guy you like the most because there's a possibility that he just stays in the rotation all year, or do you prefer one or the or both of those short-term options to Blackburn where all are available? This is the great thing about April, you know, when you you say things you never thought you'd say back in March. <laughs> but yeah, Blackburn is that guy. And I'm I'm somebody who's liked Tyler Anderson for a long time, but uh maybe yeah, maybe you being in that situation with the Dodgers, um, you know, they'll fi- figure out some things for him like they did for Andrew Heaney. But I think that that uh, position is a little bit more precarious. You've got some prospects, uh, you know, in the wings, uh, Bobby Miller, Ryan Pepio. Um it's not like I see him holding on to that spot indefinitely. So Blackburn, obviously, as long as he's pitching even decently, he's got a rotation spot. And the the upside that he's shown so far is really intriguing. So yeah, for me, it is definitely Blackburn is the, the priority and Anderson's the secondary or, or tertiary uh, contingent bid. I think I've got Anderson ahead of Stripling because I think the matchups are just a lot easier. The Dodgers have a really nice schedule coming up in the near future. He won't catch... Arizona on the road, but Anderson gets the Tigers next week if he stays on schedule. He gets a road matchup at Wrigley Field against the Cubs. I believe the Diamondbacks come back around in the schedule in the middle of May, so just a few really good streaming spots, even if you are are taking more of a short-term view of what he brings uh, to the table. Uh, the question for me with Stripling just comes down to uh, how much of the home run issue did he have last year? How much of that was just fluke, and how much of that was being in Dunedin for part of the year, and how much of that is just a permanent part of of what he brings in his profile at this point compared to Anderson, especially the matchups are much more difficult. We're looking at Ross Stripling home against the Red Sox for his lone start during the upcoming week. And then he's a two-start pitcher the following week. If everything stays on track where he'd get the Yankees at home and the guardians on the road. So plenty of volume, but a lot of risk, especially in, in two of those three starts. Yeah, well, it's it's fight because I didn't even address Stripling uh, when you were asking me to you know rank them before because yeah, to me that the home run risk really makes him a distant third compared to Anderson and Blackburn. So there's really no format right now where I'd be be looking to add him. If you're looking at those three as shallow league options and even deeper league options where available, I, I totally makes sense. I think you'd also be comparing them to a few streaming options for shallow leagues, Michael Pineda. On the road against Minnesota, assuming everything goes as planned with him. Adrian Hauser would be at the Pirates. And I think Chris Paddock is probably a shallow league streamer for a home matchup against the Tigers. That one could be a little bit more borderline. Uh, Do you like any of those three guys as clear-cut best of these streaming options? Uh, Maybe Pineda. Um, 
you know, not very much swing and miss in that first start this year with the Tigers, but, um, you know, just based on the extended track record, um, I'd say probably, probably him a little bit, but yeah, nobody's really standing out heads and sh- head and shoulders. Yeah, because the the next cluster of streamers, guys that I would look at more for your medium sized leagues, like twelve teams and, and deeper, Tyler Beatty may be getting a start against the A's. I know Sammy Long is going for the Giants on Friday. Uh, that'd be a great streaming opportunity if that's in fact a, a turn for Beatty. Ryan Yarbrough is supposed to make a rehab start this weekend. Assuming that goes as planned, he'd get the Twins at home next week. He did pick up a little bit of velo back during the spring, too. So I think Yarborough goes from outside the circle of trust the end of last year to maybe right back in, at least for streaming purposes, uh, now that he's getting healthy again. And then two Minnesota pitchers on the other side of those matchups against the Rays, Dylan Bundy and Chris Archer. Bundy might be more of a shadow league stream just based on, on usage so far. But any interest in this medium league group? Yeah, and I'm with you. I think Bundy is the one that I could actually consider, depending on what my alternatives were, consider in a 12-teamer. Uh, and just generally, yeah, I, I mean, I was in on Bundy just to start the year because I just thought if he could just regress back to where he had been in terms of home run rate, I mean, you know, just a, a few years ago, uh, a pitcher we were all very excited to roster. So I thought there was the opportunity for Bundy to get back to that. Archer's been a little better than I, I expected. So for me, it's more of a wait and see proposition to see how he does against the Rays than, than just trying to add him. Uh, so yeah, Bundy is the the clear one here. We're going to get to some two-start pitchers here in just a moment. This is a, a tough one here, a longer term. Need a starting pitcher for an AL-only league. Potential season-long contributions from Dalton Jeffries, Bruce Zimmerman, Ross Stripling, who we were just talking about, or Josh Fleming, who is among the high-risk two-start pitchers for the upcoming week. I mean, if you're playing the long game with this bunch, I'm tempted to go with Stripling just because the team context is good. The problem is that he could easily finish fourth among these pitchers in innings because those other situations all kind of push volume for the alternatives. Exactly. Yeah, it's it's a tough one. Uh, Stripling definitely has the the best upside, but you know, definitely the the biggest uh, bust uh, possibility here as well. I'm not. Yeah, I, you know, if if I could be assured that Flummy was going to um, build up to more innings. And maybe if it was a different team context, uh, I think skills wise, I actually like him the best out of this group. But um, I mean, Zimmerman's kind of intriguing, actually. I didn't, <laughs> again, things I didn't expect to say back in March, but yeah. um, I, I mean, Fleming, you know, I mean, <laughs> in reality for me, it's Fleming. Yeah, if you can't tell, that is not a lot of confidence in in that that call just from the sense of there's not much that separates these guys. Um, In the case of Zimmerman, it's a very low velocity fastball. In the case of Dalton Jeffries, it's probably a really low K rate. We've only seen 30 plus innings from him in the big leagues, but he's striking it. He struck out 13.6% of the batters he's faced, which is just not at all sustainable. Uh, so we're keeping a really close eye on, on his stuff just to see if there's anything more in the tank for him. But uh, I think it's got to be Stripling for me. It's Fleming for Al if you're digging deep in an AL-only league with a problem like that at your disposal. Some of the other two-start pitchers for this week, I mentioned Fleming. It's Seattle and Minnesota, both at home. So even if you don't like them long-term, that's a pretty decent spot with both of those opportunities uh, coming at the trop. You look at... Jake Odorizzi, two on the road. Yeah, the Rangers, sure, you want to throw guys against them, but you have to take that Blue Jays start, two in weekly leagues, so I'm probably not doing that. Kyle Freeland at Philly, home against the Reds. Jordan Lyles at the Yankees, home against the Red Sox. That's probably a pass for me as well. Reaver San Martin, home against San Diego, not bad. At Colorado, not interested. Zach Davies, home against the Dodgers, road against the Cardinals. Dallas Keuchel, two at home, Royals and Angels. That second one scares me quite a bit. And then Joanna Doan, who I want to like, I think ends up with the easiest matchups of all, even though he might have the most erratic skills of this group of very volatile starting pitchers. Yeah, that's well put with the Doan. And actually, the Marlins have not been that bad offensively, uh, you know, just looking at um, Woba and looking at some of the, the metrics. So that that uh, two step might not be as um, favorable as as it looks on first pass. Um, to me, Fleming is clearly the best option out of this group. In fact, to be honest, I was a little surprised 
to see you group him among the high risk. To me, the risk is in terms of the number of innings that he's uh, going to give you because you might only wind up with like seven innings. Um, you're almost certainly not going to to get a win out of this unless um, uh, the, the Rays go with an opener before him. But I, I think just in terms of the quality of those seven or maybe eight innings that you get from Fleming, I have uh, more confidence that those are going to be good than anybody else on this list. Yeah, so what I'm curious to know is if you agree with me putting these other three pitchers outside of the high-risk group. It doesn't mean they're without risk. It just means they're a, a little less likely to get torched twice in a, a two-start week. Michael Lorenzen, he is home against the Guardians, then on the road against the White Sox. Mitch Keller, who gets two at home, one against the Brewers, one against the Padres. And Daniel Lynch, one on the road against the White Sox, and then one at home against the Yankees. Like I could try and talk myself into any one of Lorenzen, Keller, and Lynch having more long-term value than the high-risk guys, but I don't know if I like their situation in this upcoming week much more than I like the situations for those other options. Yeah, well, um, I included Keller in this week's uh, column along with Fleming. So I know actually know exactly how I'm going to rank them because I'd go uh, Keller, then Fleming, then uh, Lorenzen, then Lynch because to Lorenzen and Lynch were, were late cuts for me from that column. Mm. So yeah, I, I lumped them all together. I definitely see them as being in a different category from the other ones. But yeah, for Lorenzen and Lynch... Um, I just do have some worries with Lorenzen, uh, the, the start against the Guardians, Lynch, the start against the Yankees. But they both have the White Sox, and the White Sox just aren't, aren't hitting. So, uh, And they're they're without Luis Robert as well. So um might might not be that bad of a week for them, but there's, there's risk there. So even if you're not as excited about the schedule for some of those guys that we just talked about, are you willing to stash any of them if you're not using them for the two-start week? I know it's pretty strange in a lot of leagues to roster a player for a two-start week and not use them, but see enough there to possibly use them later. Uh, Eno mentioned Daniel Lynch is someone that he's interested in for deeper leagues, I think 15 teams and deeper uh, you know, longer term, like maybe there's something that they can figure out with him. Location strategy hasn't been good for the pitches he throws. It's sort of a, a game of trust. Will they make the right adjustments with Daniel Lynch to help him, you know, unlock maybe being at least a, a mid-rotation quality starter for us over the course of the season? Because I can't recall any times offhand in the last season or two where I picked up a pitcher on a two-start week and not just immediately wanted to put that player in my lineup. It always feels weird, but sometimes it does make sense uh, just because you don't like the matchups or uh, a situation that we've alluded to a little bit earlier in the conversation where you want to pick somebody up maybe before they do light it up for a couple of starts and then, and then the fab price goes up, but you want it, you want to roster them. So uh, I already have Lynch in a, in a 15 teamer and yeah, I don't know if I'm going to start him this week. And if I picked him up that that really shouldn't affect the decision. So I think that makes a lot of sense. Lorenzen is somebody in particular who, if I could add him, I absolutely would add him this week, even though I didn't see fit to add him to the waiver column because of the matchups. All right. So it is possible to stash even through a two-start week in some of these instances. Uh, George wants to know, what does Joe Ryan need to show moving forward in deeper points leagues to get consistent starts? I mean, I, if you're in a deeper league, I, I think he, he's good enough to take the chances on. I, we're... We're not looking at him as a guy that's going to carry a sub one whip indefinitely. I know that's been the case through 42 and two thirds big league innings so far. But even if you just look at the projections, you know, a low fours ERA and a good whip with plenty of strikeouts, that should play in, in most deeper leagues. So other than the really difficult matchups that occasionally pop up for him in the AL Central, I, I think Joe Ryan is more in than out, especially in deeper leagues when you're making those lineup decisions. All right. Well, I have to confess something. I, I know George and I know something about the, the team he's talking about. He's he's absolutely stacked with pitching. Mm. So this is <laughs> not necessarily a situation uh, that would play the same for everybody in, in his situation. But I think just in general, I know some of the hesitation that I have with Joe Ryan, and I don't think I'm alone in this, is ensuring that the, that strikeout rate does sustain itself over the longer term uh, because of the relative lack of stuff. So I think if you know we're two, three weeks down the line uh, and he's still getting the strikeouts, I think then he is in that place, DVR, where, where you're talking about where it's, you know, you look for ways to keep him in your rotation. 
Ryan, if you're playing in an eight-team league or a 10-team league and Ryan's still available or you've been unsure of the schedule, the next couple times out looks good. Home against the Tigers coming up this week uh, at Baltimore the following week. I would plan on using Joe Ryan for both of those turns pretty much anywhere he's rostered and even in some places where he's not because I think that's the that's the situation that we're, we're looking at right now. I think it's going to be hard to find quality innings on the wire throughout this year uh, just based on how difficult it's been even through the first month. So if you have someone like that at your disposal, consider yourself lucky because it's going to be uh, nice to have him later as injuries and, and other issues probably thin out your roster uh, over the course of the season. A few more really deep league pitchers. I saw Glenn Otto is back up, and he's actually pitching against the A's on Friday night, so we'll get a look at him before his next turn. That next turn is home against the Astros. Not a great matchup, but I think there's a chance that Otto sticks in this rotation for a while. And the surface numbers, I know the ERA was up over nine last year, Al. Strikeout to walk ratio was good. The home run rate wasn't a problem. You know, he pitched really well in the minors last year, especially at double A. I know he was a little old for the level, but I think some of the issues he had with walks earlier in his career have been gone since the lost pandemic season. So I'm I'm kind of intrigued by Otto given the Rangers' needs and Um, just given some of the underlying skills he's flashed. I'm with you. I'm with you there. And if I recall from last year, I think that was a BABIP or strand rate issue. Like you said, that the the ERA estimators probably liked what he did a lot better than, I mean, how how could you not like it better than what the actual ERA was? But the skills are pretty intriguing. So uh, you could almost certainly pick him up in an AL only, I think, it's a borderline call. Obviously, when you're talking AL only, sometimes if you just have somebody who's making a start, that's somebody that qualifies for your rotation. But I, I think it's not a gimme with that matchup. But definitely, again, a case where you could pick somebody up, even if you're not intending to start that pitcher in the coming week. The other deep league streaming options I listed for this week, I have Rich Hill at Baltimore, Dalton Jeffries, we talked about a bit earlier at San Francisco, and then Bryce Elder. I think there's a little bit of extra risk with Atlanta right now because they're not going to keep a six-man rotation once rosters start to shrink back down. But for now, it looks like he's going to make a turn against the Rangers. Do you have any interest in Hill, Jeffries, or Elder at this point? I just honestly don't. I don't don't really see uh, the appeal. Uh, I mean, look, if Jeffries is available in a a 15-teamer because of the the job security and maybe a, a little bit more swing and miss than what the, the minor league track record would suggest, uh, but I'm not excited about any of them. Yeah, and Dalton Jeffries would be a two-start pitcher the following week, that first week of May, if the schedule holds, uh, with a home start against the Rays and then a road start against Minnesota. So you, you might get more than a week's worth of usage out of him, but I think every time he comes up, I'm going to be very afraid if we don't see some improvements with that strikeout rate. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's shift the focus over to relievers, where I'm surprised to see Tanner Rainey still only 50% rostered in CBS leagues, and Josh Stomont 
at 31%. I kind of think he's pushed his way into a larger share of saves than I expected. He's always had good stuff. There have been major control issues in the past. Uh, so if, if you're in a, a smaller league especially, and there are either part-time closers or questionably skilled full-time closers or closers on bad teams that actually do make it to the wire in those formats. Um, how are you prioritizing Rainey versus Stamont versus some of the other relievers that might be out there? All right. Well, I, I would put Rainey first and he is the least available, but he's got, got a hold on that, that job with the nationals. He's, um, he's always been able to get a lot of swing and miss. The walks are always the issue there. And I, I just, I like his potential better than, than Stamont or say Hector uh, Norris, Hansel Robles, uh, just because I think the, the share of the saves he's going to get is going to be much larger. Uh, one name that I would leapfrog over all the ones that you mentioned besides Rainey is Donnie Jimenez, hmm. because I think he's got a chance to be in and be closer to Rainey than say Stamont in terms of um, being closer to a primary closer role uh, with the athletics. I really do like the skill set a lot. I think like with with Rainey and Stamont, I think walks could be an issue with Jimenez, but I'm really shocked at this point that he's still, for example, on CBS, he's under 10% uh, roster rate. And I'm not sure why he's not getting the same kind of attention to some other uh, relievers who are clearly in uh, share-saving positions. Yeah, I've been waiting on Art Warren in a 15-team league. That will no longer be the case with uh, Lucas Sims you know, back in the fold for Cincinnati and just Warren not really doing much with the opportunity, even though I like the skills. just too messy right now in Cincinnati. I think Hansel Robles is interesting because the, the more I've looked at the situation, and I, I know he started to get picked up last week, Sunday, it seems like Alex Cora likes Hansel Robles a lot more than I do. And that, if you're trying to figure out who's getting saves in Boston, guess what? Who Alex Cora likes as the closer matters more than who DVR likes as the closer. Uh, so I do think there could be some shadow league appeal with Robles, certainly some deep league appeal in some of those 15 team mixed leagues where maybe he's still somehow available. I would guess I would guess his roster rate is elevated in a lot of 15 team leagues, but only 16% rostered on CBS as a whole. So probably still some some decent sized leagues where he is floating around out there. I do like that Jimenez call because I I just don't see it with Lou Trevino. And I think even as the A's probably settle in as more of like a 65 win team. When they win, it's going to be a lot of close games. They are not going to score a lot of runs. They are not built to score a lot of runs. So I think they will generate a decent number of save chances, even if they're a team that's well below 500 when the dust settles on this season. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you there. I'm not really worried about opportunities there. I'm also with you in terms of thinking that Jimenez is, has just the much, much better skill set than Trevino. Like you said, what you think and, what, and even what I think, you know, doesn't matter as much as, uh, you know, say what Mark Kotze thinks. But given the recent usage patterns, it does seem like Kotze is moving in that direction. He used Jimenez in that high leverage role in the eighth inning uh, recently. Uh, and I think it was Trevino that pitched the ninth. But, you know, I think that 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 pitcher that has that high leverage role probably also does have the edge in terms of uh, how many save chances that they actually get. Here's a tough question. I think this is a good one if you're in a 10-team league, especially Gregory Soto, top 15 or better relief pitcher for the season. True or false? And so far, very early on, only five and two-thirds innings, a career-best walk rate, 9.5%, and a career-worst strikeout rate at 14.3% with home runs being sprinkled in a little bit here as well. Again, very, very limited sample. Tough to evaluate a lot of players in April, two weeks into the season. Even more difficult to evaluate relievers. Yeah, it really is. Uh, So I have to lean pretty heavily on, you know, preseason estimations of this. And obviously, you know, we've had some, uh, with some roles shift, but not in Detroit. So that, you know, we can pretty much look at Soto the same way we did a couple of weeks ago. And yeah, top 15, that that's really, I think the place to set the over under. If you're going to make me choose, I'd say probably under, but I, I think 15 high end number two RP, that's that's where I expect Soto to be. Yeah, see, I, I think it's a fault. I think I like Tanner Rainey more than I like Gregory Soto rest of the way, but I was a Soto skeptic back during draft season as well. I know Eno likes him, 
Uh, I think Ian Kahn likes him. So there's people out there. There are believers on Soto. I think he's one of the more polarizing relievers that ends up in this this range, kind of the the closer three that could be a two for some people and the I don't want this guy on my roster for others. And I'm a little more on the I'd rather not have to deal with it. Um, but I'm really curious to see what the next, you know, even the next 15 innings brings. Once we get 20 innings in, is that walk rate still down? Is the K rate still as low as it is right now, I would guess the Ks go up and the walks probably go up too. And we get something that's maybe a little better than 2021 skills wise. I guess it's also a question of who can actually push him for saves. I think the Andrew Chafin addition was the one late thing the Tigers did that made things a little more complicated for Soto. I think before that, it looked like he had a lot of, of, of downside that he could kind of weather in the role before losing his job. I think he's got less of that now. Um, with Chafin potentially being there, health permitting. Yeah, no, that, that I think that's true too. So yeah, Chafin's somebody to to definitely monitor. But just to to get back to what you were saying about, you know, waiting till we get to see twenty more innings. Um, you know, of course that that takes us, you know, pr- pretty much into June. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then yeah, then you can tell a lot. But it, it's just so interesting right now to see what's happening early and how that might be sustained. I mentioned uh, you know Donnie Jimenez before. He is third right now among um, qualified relievers in CSW. Second is Edwin Diaz. Hmm. Number one is Stephen Wilson. Who was thinking about Stephen Wilson two weeks ago or maybe even a week ago? I wasn't at all. I saw him pitch. Jeez, it was just a couple days ago. It might have been his most recent appearance, but I was watching watching Stephen Wilson. I was like, whoa, this guy's good. And we, we were talking about closing options for the Padres. It felt like all winter, you know, they made that late trade to get Taylor Rogers, which made most of all, all that a, a moot point. And if they hadn't traded for Rogers, I think Wilson would have been the guy that came out of nowhere to surprise us and possibly emerge to take on some of those opportunities because he's been very good so far. Yeah. So I'm not to worry people who have rostered uh, Taylor Rogers everywhere like I have, but uh, yeah, definitely interesting to watch. What are you doing with the Marlins closer situation? Anthony Bender has thrown basically two very bad pitches that have resulted in home runs. And I think around that, he's actually looked pretty good. Um, But look, you can't give up home runs when you're trying to close out games. Dylan Flores is still on the IL for now. Are you speculating on other Marlins relievers expecting that job to turn over? Or do you actually see Bender uh, riding the ship here after a few bumpy outings in these first two weeks? I've had some doubts about Bender just anyway because he... And maybe this is unfair or just not even a smart thing to do, but because he relies more on the the called strike than the swinging strike, which is not a profile that we typically see in closers. But again, Flora doesn't really fit your typical profile either. Uh, but I, I'm kind of just reverting back to where the Marlins were last season, where it seemed like Floro had the upper hand. And I think once he's back, I would expect he would have at least a 50% share, maybe even in the best case scenario for Anthony Bender. So uh, I'm uh, I haven't bid on Floro in leagues where I don't have him, but I do have him in a couple of leagues where I'm stashing him. I'll, I'll keep stashing him as long as I can. And you know, as we get more news about um, his his return, maybe actually start bidding on Floro in some leagues. Got one more hitter question that came in uh, during the live stream, so we'll throw this out here. The Guardians have a quality pile at middle infielder. Who, at middle infield, who would you buy in on for fantasy versus who do you think they're favoring? Uh, this question came from someone who's a, an Andres Jimenez guy, but uh, he's not getting as many at-bats as I'd hope. So, you know, with Naylor back and, and Owen Miller eventually playing more at second base, it does crowd things a little bit. Uh, so I'm curious, what are you doing with that Cleveland middle infield? Uh, I mean, in reality, not a lot. Not not doing, you know, taking action. But I do like Miller a little better than Jimenez. Uh, you know, I think we are rooting for Jimenez to get a lot of playing time for the stolen bases. But, you know, to repeat the theme that we've raised several times, I mean, it's the manager that matters here. And uh, Jimenez has just not been able to really seize regular playing time. So, yeah, I, I think if I were to, to bid on one, I'd be more inclined to do so with Miller than, than Jimenez. Yeah, Jimenez is a, a tough hold, I think, if the playing time ends up being every other day or two-thirds of a share. That just is not quite enough in a lot of mixed leagues. Obviously, different situations if you're in an AL-only league or if you got a, a keeper component. But I think the long-term question I've always had with, with Andres Jimenez is, are we going to get anything else with that speed? Is it actually going to be a multiple category profile that we that we can be excited about? 
flashes of, of power, of course, at the AAA level. You know, 10 homers in just 52 games there a year ago. Top five in 68 games with Cleveland, but did it with a 218, 282, 351 slash line. So I, don't, I just don't, I don't have that ceiling expectation that some people have had for him. And as my, my expectations are more of like, if it all works out, 250, 255 in the average category, maybe double digit homers and possibly high teens, like low 20 steals, which is pretty much in line with the projections. I guess I see a little more average potential than the projections do when it comes to Andres Jimenez, but I do think Owen Miller is a problem. And they've got other prospects coming through the minors that I think really, really put pressure on Jimenez to hit to become more than a long-term utility player in their plans. So I think that's the other problem as well. Thanks a lot for all the great questions during the live stream. Of course, join us any week at 4 p.m. Eastern on Fridays on the Athletic Fantasy YouTube channel. We'll get the link out at least 30 minutes before we get started. You can find Al on Twitter at AlMelkYourBB. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. And as I mentioned up top, check out Al's waiver wire column. It goes up every Friday at theathletic.com. Slash Fantasy Baseball Podcast gets you in the door for $1 a month over the first six months. Really a great deal. Gets you access to everything else under the athletic umbrella as well. That's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. We are back with you on Tuesday. 